John chapter 7. Our passage this morning will come from John chapter 7, uh, verses 40, all the way through the end of chapter 7. On the hills of Resurrection Sunday, a lot of us were able to spend a good deal of of time or a, a small fraction of time with our families. And maybe if you're like me, you are, are oftentimes really geared up for the, the Easter service where we're thinking about Christ and we're thinking about the resurrection and we're real geared up because we look for these opportunities. And maybe you got an opportunity this year to share Christ with a loved one and, um, and it didn't go very well. Maybe you got to share the loving um, sacrifice of, of the, the one and only Savior, the Lord Jesus, and it fell on deaf ears. As we think about our passage today, I want us to think about the different responses that the world gives when we reflect upon and share and proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. There's a myriad of responses. I mean, it is the theme of uh, the rejection of the Son of God that we've looked at in this uh, walk through the Gospels. It's been a long journey, and we're seeing the suffering servant, the one who is rejected by men, and sprinkled throughout the miracles of Jesus and the, the proclamations of Jesus. We see many follow him, but we see the masses deny him. We see these many responses to Jesus. And in our lives, we, as I said, we, 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 we get geared up oftentimes to proclaim the message of the Lord Jesus Christ to a loved one or to a co-worker, oftentimes just to face the rejection of, of not ourselves, but the message and the person of Jesus Christ. It's very discouraging. It's very disheartening. It brings great sadness to our lives to consider the repercussions of such a rejection. And I think it's because of those realities of this world that the people of this fallen world do respond to Christ in different ways. That is the reason that John writes this section in verses 40 through the end of chapter 7. He is recounting as he has done uh, throughout his gospel, these different reactions. And the theme of this little section here is the word schisma in the Greek, which is division. He says it in verse 7. He'll say it again in verse... Excuse me. He says it in chapter 7. He will say it again in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 that the people were divided... That's what that word means, a schism or schisma. They were divided over the Lord Jesus. And that's kind of the, um, the reality that we face today. It's a reality that we despair over today. That there will be a great many people that will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and we will rejoice and be glad and celebrate and, 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 and fellowship with our new brothers and sisters in Christ. And there will be those who reject his name 
and face the consequences. And so the thought of this morning is how does a fallen world respond to the Son of God? And John gives us three responses this morning. And as we think about these things, I want us to see not a, a sermon of despair, but a sermon of hope. It's a sermon of hope because the salvation of many souls is a, uh, is a great um, responsibility upon God himself. That it is God who saves sinners. And we are given the command to go, and we are given the command to be faithful, and we are given the command to properly and correctly proclaim the gospel message. But it is upon our sovereign God to save. That it is for His glory and His majesty and according to His plan that He saves. And so, while it brings despair in our lives, it also gives us a sense of hope to trust in a God that is doing things that we cannot control and we cannot understand. In my house, sitting on our kitchen uh, countertops is a butterfly breeding ground. We are growing butterflies in our homeschool family. And it's been pretty cool to see these little bitty caterpillars, which, to be honest with you, looked like termites when they first came to me. And they come in this little bitty homeschool cup with the food at the bottom and a little airport at the top and and they can breathe properly and they can eat properly and they just began to grow and 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 just became massive chunky caterpillars until they went up into the top and they formed their chrysalis and then yesterday one of them broke free and it's just been so cool to see this beautiful transformation of this caterpillar to this butterfly. And all I could think about yesterday is I was really just almost transporting myself back to this school age amusement and, and amazement. I was thinking, I'm not doing anything here. I'm not raising these caterpillars. I'm not, I didn't create these caterpillars. I'm not participating in their transformation. I'm not participating in the beauty of their wings as they've sprouted and they're beginning to to flutter and move and, and gain strength. And I'm not going to be able to control the death of this cat or this butterfly as we release it into the sky soon. I can nurture it, I, I can put it in proper environments. We didn't leave it outside last night in 30-degree weather in April. But I'm taking a a backseat approach to what God has created and the processes that God has instilled, and I trust them, and I see the beauty in them. And I give Him glory. And so I hope today we can look at this passage, we can see those things and glorify God as the God of our salvation. Look at with me 
In John chapter 7, let me read verses 40 down to 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied to Nicodemus, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The first response that we see this morning is that some will see Jesus Christ. They will see the, the, the beauty of the gospel and their faith will be made evident. They will see Jesus Christ for who he has revealed himself as, the eternal living Son of God, and their faith will be made evident. It's amazing to me that these common Jews, this group of people that remember with me have gathered in Jerusalem for the feast of the tabernacles or the feast of the booths and the, 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 the week had come to an end. Jesus has just declared to them that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what's the response? Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah or the Christ. They're saying those things with certainty. They're saying those things with belief. Short-sighted belief, probably. You'll notice that they are dividing the two. Some believe this is the prophet. Who are they talking about? They're talking about the successor to Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses promises the people that a prophet will arise like him from among the brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. That, that not only looks to, Joseph, uh, to Joshua who, who followed Moses, but it looks beyond Joshua to Yeshua who is Jesus, the, the one who is the great prophet, the one who spoke the very words of God because he is God. But believe, surprisingly, the Jews looked at the great prophet who was to come, this eschatological or future prophet, they looked at him as just one of the future leaders of the kingdom to come. 
At this time, the Jews would not have lumped the great prophet in with the great Messiah. We are in a post-resurrection, canon-completed world where we look back into the scriptures and we see how all those things point to Jesus. So these Jews were going, oh, this guy's the prophet. This guy has proven that he speaks with authority, not in of himself. This is the one that God has promised us, the one who speaks the very words of God. Others said, no, the evidence points to this as as the Messiah. This is the one who will come and rule and reign to restore the nation of Israel so that we will live once again in an age of peace, of prosperity. No longer slaves to the pagans and the Greeks and the, and the Gentiles surrounding us. And what they failed to understand is that the prophet that they were looking for and the Messiah that they were looking for, Jesus was much more than those expectations. He was the prophet and the Messiah that they needed not necessarily that they expected. But regardless, the evidence was there. The evidence was there, and let's not preclude from, or let's not deduce from this one uh, uh, aspect that these people came to this understanding on their own. We have to see and understand that them to to see the evidence and and begin to bring those points back to the, the Old Testament Scriptures and to see Jesus fulfilling those things has to be a work of the Spirit of God in their life. Why? Because again, in a post-resurrection world, we understand that all fall short of the glory of God. That our hearts are desperately wicked. That no one seeks after God. So as they're coming to these conclusions, not understanding the full weight of Jesus being both prophet and Messiah, not understanding that Jesus will be the one of salvation, not a physical but a spiritual salvation, they don't understand that yet. And yet you're beginning to see belief. Belief in the evidence, belief in the truth. And brothers and sisters, that is wrought by the Spirit of God. Let's not give fallen mankind too much credit for when they believe in Jesus. It's what the Holy Spirit does in us. And the evidence was pointing to the truth and they were believing that truth. Amy and I recently got to experience um, the escape, escape room phenomenon. Have you guys been to these? In these escape, escape rooms, uh, you're going to solve a, a crime, or you're going to solve some uh, fictional murder, or you're going to solve some scenario, and it's a, a myriad of clues uh, while you're locked into a room and you have to solve all these clues in order to escape. 
And what's so interesting is that each one of those clues is dependent upon each other for you to escape. You usually don't leave clues behind and escape the room. One clue leads to the next and the next and the next. You might not even find them in the right order, but you always will have all the evidences, all the clues pointing to the one solution, and that one solution allows you the escape. As I was thinking about that this week in my study, I was thinking, you know, that's not the case with the gospel. And what I mean by that is that there are often times many people who need all the evidences laid out before them about the Lord Jesus Christ. I want the scientific evidence. I want the archaeological evidence. I want the historical evidence. I want it all. Just lay it out in front of me and, and, and let me mull that over in my mind. And praise be to God, many of those people come to know Christ. Not long ago, I told you about the story of Lee Strobel, the case for Christ, the, 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 the man who wrote the case for Christ. Now it's a, a movie. We watched it on Amazon. It's a, I recommend it. It's a great story about this man's journey. He needed all the evidence laid before him, and after evaluating the truth and the factuality of, the, of that evidence, he believed he couldn't turn it down. He was such a proponent and seeker of truth. But guess what? A 15-year-old boy or girl, they don't have all that truth. They have the simplicity of the gospel. They know that they are fallen sinners. They know that there is nothing they can do to save themselves. That their righteousness, righteousness is, is as filthy rags to God. And so they cry out to God in, in repentance and faith, and they believe. They don't know the archaeological evidence of Babylon. They know the gospel. And so the, the point is, is that the, the, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the identity of Jesus Christ, now that we have a, a complete understanding of who Jesus is as he's revealed himself, we see that many people, whether big or small, whether great or little, they understand the very basic elements of the gospel and they believe. And that is on a sovereign God. As he draws them to himself, as he opens their mind to see, that means a professor at Harvard or Yale, believe in the same way that a child may believe in the gospel. When they understand their lostness and that Jesus Christ is the only way for salvation when they believe that his atoning work on the cross, his substitute provides a resurrect or a, 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 a salvation from sin, a, a forgiveness that they cannot earn or deserve. And so they trust in that Jesus to save them. And we as believers rejoice in the miracle when, a, when God calls a sinner to salvation. We, we rejoice in that, but we oftentimes struggle. We oftentimes come to such great despair when we see those dear loved ones 
have all that evidence before them and say, I cannot believe. And we have to ask why. Why? Why is it that some believe and others do not? How can two children, say identical twins, be raised in the same household, have gone to the same church, listened to the same lessons in family worship and in Sunday school, had the gospel faithfully shared to them by their parents, both even shown both spiritual interest, maybe at different times, and yet one of them grows up and walks away from believing in Christ while the other is faithful to believe. Why? If you're a parent or a grandparent, you struggle. The questions that plague your mind, could, could I have done more? Did, did I fail my children in not teaching them enough? Was I not faithful enough with the gospel? And as difficult as a reality as it is for me to say, the truth is not all will believe in Christ. We don't have a number I don't agree with the idea and, the, and the, the doctrine that the Jehovah Witnesses preach that there's 144,000 people that will believe. We, we don't have a number. That's why we go and we're faithful to share because we don't know who will believe. But we know that there will be those who don't. So how do we deal with this? Let me, let me encourage you with three things. Number one, God is not obligated to save a single one of us, but he does. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned, our sinful nature requires a justice, a justice from God because of his holiness. And that justice is, is that sin must be punished. And so those who sin, which is all of humanity, because they inherited a sinful nature from Adam, will face the wrath of God against their sin. So let this sink in for a moment. You and I are not entitled to salvation. We are not entitled. You may think that you deserve, as you drive down the road, to people, for people to respect your lane of traffic. Like, this is my personal space. I am driving as a good driver in the city of Memphis or the city of Bartlett. You better respect me. Don't cut me off. Don't honk at me inappropriately. Don't make me wait while you're using your, checking your text messages at a red light. And you feel entitled to that. You are not entitled to the, the grace of God that he has provided us. We are all undeserving. As people who are rebels at heart, who, who sin with pleasure against the Almighty God, our inheritance is an eternal damnation until God rescues us. Until God sends His Son to rip us from the destination 
of eternal suffering. And let us even go farther in saying that the most unbelieving, vile, godless people in this world are actually sustained moment by moment. Not only physically, but they are given spiritual opportunity to hear the gospel and believe. In his famous sermon entitled, Sinner in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards writes this, There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean His sovereign pleasure, His arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God, God's uh, mere will, had in the least degree or in any respect whatsoever any hand in the preservation of wicked, wicked men one moment. To paraphrase, God is not obligated to save us, And God is not obligated to even allow wicked sinners to live one moment in this earth. But he does. He lavishes a common grace upon the most evil of people. And he does it for even his glory and his good. Number two, God's eternal purposes to save some flow out of a love of God. For there is no evil hatred found in him. It is an act of compassion and love that God chooses to rescue us and save us. It is not based upon our prerequisites, but on his eternal plan set before the foundation of the world. This same love and mercy and commitment to his plan was demonstrated when God chose not to kill the rebellious Adam and Eve. But instead, what does he do? He clothes them in the, 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 the garments of a slaughtered animal to foreshadow the great sacrifice of his son that would one day clothe all believers in the righteousness that we did not earn on our account, but in the righteousness of the eternal Son of God himself. That's why I love Ephesians chapter 2, you're reading about the depravity and the sinfulness of human beings. And then verse 4 of chapter 2, but God. That's all you need. Change of direction, but God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Undeserving. Sola Dei Gloria. Glory to God alone. Number three, we will never completely understand the infinite mind and purposes of God 
For we are and will always be finite human beings merely blessed by an infinite God and his grace. You and I cannot understand all that God is and does. Your brain's not big enough. Your spirit's not strong enough. Your heart is not full enough to have all of God. He has all of you through the sacrifice of his son, but you can't have all of him. Moses could could only experience the back of his glory. The disciples could only see the face of the transfigured one on the mountaintop. Job could not understand all that God was doing when everything was stripped away from him. Joseph couldn't recollect all that God was doing when everything was taken away from him. But these these men remind us what? To trust God's plan when we don't understand. Some will see the evidence of God and a miracle happens, they believe. Some will see all the evidence of God or hear the simplicity of the gospel and they will refuse Christ. Number two, some will have the evidence and their faith is absent. Here's another but. But, verse 41, some said... Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. See, the big question for the skeptics of Jesus was the origins of the Messiah. And here these skeptics are are, are very right in asking about the Uh, the birthplace of the Messiah. They knew that the Messiah would come and he would be the offspring of David. But they looked at Jesus and they didn't know that he was born in Bethlehem. He was a boy from Nazareth. And as they have said so many times in the Gospels, what good comes from Nazareth? See, they didn't have the understanding that 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 Micah 5.2 prophecy about the Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus. So in essence, they were asking the right questions, but they were failing to see all the other ways that Jesus had manifested his glory before them. The hinge pin was not this one aspect of Jesus' birthplace. It was just the stumbling block to them in their belief or in their unbelief. Some could see the evidence and say, this is the prophet, this is the Messiah. Others said, well, what about the birthplace thing? This guy's from Nazareth. See, we live with the full story, the full revelation, the understanding that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that he was also raised in Nazareth in obscurity, also fulfilling the prophecy of a, of a, a child who no one gave him esteem and no one uh, understood him and, and no one honored him and gave him the glory that he deserved because he was come, he had come as the rejected servant. He came as the man of humility who would give his life. 
He had stepped out of the glories of heaven to face the rejection of men on earth. And so these people were stumbling in unbelief. This division had continually occurred in the, in the, the relationships that Jesus had and the message that he was proclaiming. And as he said in verse 33, 43, there was division among the people over him. I almost think of it as like a, Jesus is, is proclaiming in, in, the, in a large crowd and there's just a, a constant bickering and there's a constant divide. He's the prophet. Well, what about his birthplace? And there's an, almost a, an, an, a public argument. And it just seems like that these people would, would be able to understand and believe. And that's where we, we, we fall into uh, s- such frustration because we can lay out the, the factual truth of the gospel. We can uh, give personal evidence and testimony. And we can do all these things and we're looking at people in the face and they're going, I don't understand. I, I, don't, I can't follow. I don't see what you see. And so how do we, as believers, look to these, this response, this rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we respond in, in these situations? John is laying out this response of rejection, of a, of a lack of faith. And, and, and how do we, as believers, continue on when people say, I don't get it? Or Jesus is not for me. Well, I say one, we pray. God works through our prayers according to his will. James tells us that we should, we should pray continually because our prayers are effective. They're not wasted uh, words. They're not, they're not wasted time spent pleading and begging with God. They are actually an acknowledgement that you believe in the sovereignty and rule of our God. Because why else would you be asking him to do anything in such a way if you didn't believe that he had control over these things? And so we fervently pray and beg and plead that our God would awaken people's hearts to new life according to his power. We pray. Number two, we love. God is not given the spiritualized, um, he, he has not given people the spiritualized to see. And we don't know for certain who those people are that believe and don't believe. So what do we do? We don't go around and, and just kind of predetermining what people may think or believe about Jesus. We go out and we love all people. And, and, and when we do that, we love not with just our hearts, but we love with our actions. We love with our words. We love as Christ loved with sacrifice. We love is, I was reminded this week, like the parable of the, of, the, of the Good Samaritan, where we ask 
Not what's going to happen to me if I help this man, but what's going to happen to this man if I don't help him? And in that love of Christ, in that compassion for all people, in that uh, compassion to sacrifice our own very needs for the sake of all people who are created in the image of God, who very well, very well may hear the gospel and respond and believe and be transformed. In that compassion, we don't stop merely with a, a, a social justice. We start with a procl- proclaimed gospel. We love people And the greatest expression of of our love for them is to share the truth of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their sins. So we pray, we love, and lastly we trust. And this is the hardest for us. As we do not know God's plan, we must be faithful to his commands We obey and we trust God for the results of his kingdom. We spread the seeds, knowing the seeds can be used by God to grow, to produce new followers of Christ. Like the farmer described in Mark 4, Jesus says in a parable, the kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seeds on the ground. That's the faithfulness, that's the trust of the, of the church to, to be faithful to scatter the seeds. But the parable continues. The farmer sleeps. He rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Jesus says, this is the kingdom of God. This is how the kingdom of God grows and expands. And so we trust in the faithfulness of God, in the sovereignty of God, that we would oftentimes fail to completely understand. Number three. Some will see the evidence and have faith Some will see the evidence and reject. And in that rejection, some will try and oppress him. But his power is too abundant. I love this. John chapter 7 verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him. We know that the some of them is the Jewish leaders. We've already seen in chapter 7, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about these things, and the chief priests sent officers to arrest him. We are now seeing the fruit of that in verse 44. The officers are sent. These officers are like temple guards. They're like uh, hired hands that are... um, Uh, Kind of like a security detail, but yet these men are not just thugs. These are trained men. These people know the law. Oftentimes these could be scribes, and they are officers of the court, and they follow the leadership of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, a.k.a. the Sanhedrin, the, the leadership council of the Jews. 
And so the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees and this Sanhedrin send these officers and say, the people are muttering, this man is speaking blasphemous things, go arrest him. But praise be to God, John chapter 7 verse 30, we already know that they were seeking to arrest him, but no one lays a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So we get the ending of the movie before the movie in John chapter 7 verse 30. And so in John chapter 7 verse 44, we know it's about to happen. John already told us. They're going to go try to arrest him, but they're not going to because God's plan was not for him to be arrested at this point. Because our God is sovereign and he rules all things. And so what do they do? They go to arrest him. And how does God unfold this plan? It's beautiful. These officers go to arrest him. They come back to the chief priests and Pharisees empty-handed. They're questioned and interrogated. And here's their answer. No one has ever spoke like this man. Can you, can you just step back for a minute and think about the seriousness of them coming back empty-handed? I mean, they could have faced serious punishment for not doing what they had been commanded to do. They will be sent again, and that group of people will eventually arrest Jesus in the garden. But at this point, they're mesmerized by Jesus and his words. They're stopped in their tracks because the things that Jesus is saying are mesmerizing them. So much so that they are willing to turn around and defy the very orders that they've been given by their religious leaders because Jesus has impacted them. This is the power of God on display. That even as people try to oppress and arrest the Lord Jesus Christ, when God says the hour has not come, they're not arresting him. When Joseph gets thrown in the pit by his brothers in attempted murder, God's plan was not for this man to die in a pit. This, God's plan was this man was to be a temporary salvation for the people in Egypt. And by all means, that was going to happen. And it was going to foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ because that's exactly what he does throughout all of Scripture. Showing us his abundant, faithful power so that in these moments of despair, we can see that his power is abundant even when people try to oppress our God. And so in chapter 7, verse 47, the Pharisees interrogate these men even more. They say, have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. This is a very ironic statement. See, the Jews, the religious leaders are, are so frustrated that they are now turning on their own con constituents. They are now turning on their own followers, their own parishioners, as you would say. They are turning on them and insulting them, saying, listen, 
How is it that you believe in this man when these very untrained uh, crowds of people do not even believe? They call this crowd accursed. They, They don't even know the law. And yet somehow you're being duped. But the irony here is verse, in verse 52. They say, are you too not from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So, the religious leaders are calling the crowds ignorant. People that don't know the law. And are testifying that there's no way that Jesus is this prophet, this Messiah, because no prophet arises from Galilee. But actually, there were prophets that arose from Galilee. Jonah came from Galilee. Elijah came from the Old Testament area of Galilee. Nahum came from Galilee. So who are truly the ignorant ones in this statement? The irony here is that in God's power, he is giving people an understanding of the scriptures beyond even their religious leaders. Secondly, the irony here in the power of God on display is seen in verse 48 when he says, They say to the the officers, have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? And I love this. And then John says, let me remind you of Nicodemus. Let me remind you of Nicodemus, because Nicodemus speaks up in this moment. Be Be reminded that Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. He comes to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. And in that discussion with Jesus, it is revealed to him that a man must be born again. But Nicodemus comes looking at Jesus and, and, and at least confessing at that moment, you are a man from God. The next story of Nicodemus is that in the midst of this confrontation between the Pharisees and the officers, Nicodemus speaks up and and, and defends Jesus. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now listen, that's not a declaration of belief. But we can at least see in that a journey of Nicodemus' life. Fast forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have two members of the Pharisees taking Jesus' body with permission from Pontius Pilate, carrying the embalming fragrances to the tomb, and they are embalming the Lord Jesus following the ceremonial burial rites of the Jews. And it's these evidences 
that we can at least see Nicodemus on a journey which Christian history and church tradition, lots of, most people or lots of people would, would, would affirm that in the post-resurrection early church period, Nicodemus is a believer in Jesus Christ. Some will dispute that. We don't have all the evidence. But it is ironic to me that these Pharisees would say, have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? And one of the Pharisees slips up his hand. Um, can I ask just a, a general question here? The, the general question would be, are we equitable people? Are we fair people as Jews? Can we not at least give this man a fair trial? Which, by the way, foreshadowing to the future, Jesus doesn't get a fair trial. Can we be equitable and fair? And by the way, Jesus is not treated fairly. He's an innocent man crucified on a cross as a murderer and a killer. So I'd like to believe that Nicodemus in some point believes in Jesus. I'm not 100% sure. But I think it's a testimony to the abundant power of God that even in the midst of the expected denial and rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders, not one, but two, and maybe more, rise up from that group and believe in Jesus. Paul being a generation of that, trained in the religious uh, schools, the Jewish law, being a persecutor of the church. And what happens? By God's power and abundant mercy, he saves him. The scales fall from his eyes. And so we step away from that church and we say, there is nothing, there is nothing in this world that should cause us to doubt that if God chooses to affix his mercy and his grace on the vilest of sinners, on the ones who oppress him and his church, on the one who want to defame his name, if it is God's plan, those people will come to Christ. And so we must trust in that power. Some will believe. Some will believe in him. We pray and, and beg that our children believe in him. We pray and beg. I, I pray every day, God, please open the mind and the eyes of my children to see the beauty of Christ and his sacrifice for them. The scriptures confess of God's faithfulness to save the undeserving. They remind us of his power to circumvent the mere feeble attempts of humanity to oppress or silence the people of God. 
We oftentimes focus so much on the persecuted church that we fail to give glory to God over the myriads of times and opportunities that God has allowed them escape from those persecutions. We focus on the persecuted church and we think, oh my goodness, look at these brothers and sisters in in jail. Let's pray for them. Let's be reminded to pray for them as they suffer in jail. But if we're reminded of the New Testament church, we oftentimes see that it was the very jail time of the Apostle Paul that was an evangelistic ministry for him where myriads of people were coming to Christ. So as we remember to pray for their sufferings, let's be reminded that it is God who is staying their death. That is keeping keeping them alive, giving them ample opportunity to spread the gospel. And as we live in a world of suffering and evil, we can confess with certainty there will always be evil attempts to thwart the plan and the purposes and the glory of the Lord Jesus. These people sought to arrest him only by being arrested by the truth of Jesus. Many people seek seek to oppress him only to have their minds oppressed by the sovereign plan and purposes and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we trust in his power. He will glorify his son. He will build his church. He will return and judge all evil, casting Satan into hell for all eternity. He will restore all things to himself. He will build a new heaven and earth where believers will dwell for all eternity in the presence and glory of Christ. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so as you come to our services this morning, as I've said many times, spiritually limping into the door. News this week of disease, death, potential threats, social unrest and disunity, political instability, family divisions, all of those things press against our flesh. A flesh that loves to worry, a flesh that loves to be faithless, a flesh that loves to be afraid but by the Spirit of God that is wrought in you, by the power of of Christ in you, may you trust in God's power. May you trust in His plan over this world, working mysteriously and silently, not only in your life, but in the lives of people all over this world. Would you see the plan unfolding that God is carrying out that is not being thwarted? That he will continue to do all that he has been uh, purposed to do from the beginning? May you have the same reflection of King David in the most desperate hours as he says in Psalm 20. Now that I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will say he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. 
Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and they fall, but we rise and stand upright. Let's pray. Father, we...